0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That thumping bass line is the work of Chris Squire of the band Yes, which he helped found in 1968. He went on to be on each studio album the band put out into the present, guiding Yes through more restructurings and reorganizations than Sears and Radio Shack combined. Think of Chris Squire as the CEO of a band that traversed nearly five decades of touring and recording. Sadly, Chris just passed away after battling leukemia. He was 67. We talked to his friend and stage mate Trevor Rabin, who manned the guitars for Yes through much of the 80s and 90s. Stay with us. Broadcast of Full Disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market, Elwood Thompson's, proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for 25 years. Located at the top of Kerrytown. And Best Bully Sticks, a national provider of high-quality dog chews and treats. Fast, free shipping on large orders. Shop BestBullySticks.com and call 877-483-5853. Joining us from his studio in Los Angeles, attached to his house, is longtime guitarist for Yes. It's an honor and a privilege to have him. I grew up listening to him. Trevor Rabin, he's currently a a master uh, film composer. He's been on uh, upward of 40 films, including 13 for Jerry Bruckheimer, including uh, Remember the Titans, Armageddon, and National Treasure. Uh, Films that have had, I think, $5 billion of box office sales attached to them. Thank you so much, Trevor, for joining us. Great. Nice to speak to you, Robin. Uh, Trevor, I just want to take back, you know, and this this show is dedicated to Chris Squire, who uh, you crossed paths with and who brought you to Yes in the early 80s. When did you first meet? What, was it, what were the circumstances behind that?
1: Um, I was actually, I had written um, material for an album. Um, I was doing it uh, with Geffen Records. And um, that didn't quite work out. So I I thereafter took the material and started shopping it around. One of the places was Atlantic Records. And at that point, uh, Phil Carson, who was the A&R guy, said, I'd like, it'd be good if you met Chris Squire and had a chat. So Chris, me, and Alan went to uh,
0: lunch in London. Chris, uh, the bassist, Alan White, the longtime drummer of Yes.
1: Oh, no. Chris, Chris Squire and Alan White. And we met at a sushi restaurant. And uh, Chris, I say, with complete love, was late as usual. <laughs> and uh, we, we hit it off really well and uh, decided to do something.
0: And so the working we, title for this group, though, was not Yes? That was not, no, uh, it, not the, in the your band, mind's eye? Right. The band was to be called Cinema. And you had some demos that you brought. I mean, I heard them in a CD you put out, I think, called 90124.
1: Right. Uh, Which came Uh, out,
0: which had really early rough versions of songs like uh, Uh, Love Will Find A Way, which was subsequent to this. But Owner of a Lonely Heart, the big song, the big splash that you made with Yes.
1: Right. Um, And uh, I, I, I played Chris that. He played me some of his material. And we literally rehearsed nonstop for seven months before even looking to get a record deal.
0: What was his personality like back then? I mean, we are uh, positing that he was obviously co-founder of Yes going back to 1968, but also the connective tissue, the CEO, the head of HR, the person who – yeah, obviously, Yes had more corporate restructurings than AT&T and Radio Shack combined, and – he had all these different uh, uh, members, all these different uh, characters that came in, whether you're a keyboardist in a cape or a South African guitarist who had classical training. Uh, how, did he, how did he kind of um, push forth some suasion and convince you that this was not an odd connection, that he in fact was ready to come into the 80s and your style of music?
1: Well, um, I think you describe him pretty aptly. He, was, uh, he really was the soul of the band. And uh, when I first met him, as I say, there was no intention of calling it Yes, we just musically connected. You know, a lot of people make a concerted effort, uh, what with publicists and stylists and stuff to to, uh, appear cool. Chris just was very naturally cool. He was always up with the latest and uh, always exploring ways to uh, redefine and uh, rediscover. And uh, it, it just, we had such a similar outlook on what we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, so that's how we started off. I think within two, two uh, within the second show, uh, we, we realized how much fun we had together. And he has since been one of my closest friends and uh, was always late for everything he ever did. Uh, the only thing I wish was he would have been 30 years late for his passing.
0: Uh, when did you learn that he was, he was ill? He was in treatment, I believe, or, or in a hospice in Arizona. He announced to everybody several months ago that he'd had a form of leukemia, but it was right. largely expected that he would be able to tour with uh, what is remains of yesterday.
1: Well, we spoke all the time, and he mentioned this to me some a couple of months ago, that he's going into hospital uh, to deal with this leukemia issue. And it just got worse and worse. And then he went on chemo. And the the thought was that he'd he'd beaten it. And and, uh, he had two or three days before he passed. He'd had a really good day. I spoke to his wife, and uh, she was quite hopeful. And so it was with a lot of grief and shock when we learned of this.
0: It was really grief and shock to everyone because, again, he was the lion. He was he was the, if, you know, we, we put it in management terms, the CEO of the band, the founder, the Connective Tissue. He had played on every one of their 20-plus albums uh, with or without John Anderson, with or without Steve Howe, with or without Trevor Rabin. Even, you know, when they went through their pre-Buggles iteration, uh, yes, drama – Um, I would love to get the story of kind of, um, you know, your initiation into Yes, when it became Yes, when they'd realized that Chris had bumped somewhere, I guess, in SoCal or I don't know what the story is back into John Anderson. And the album was substantially completed uh, between you and Chris. And I don't know if it was Trevor Horn and Alan White and John Anderson came in and put on some vocals. And then it became, I think, (laughs) the genesis of what became the best selling Yes album
1: right yeah Trevor Horn never sang uh on it or played anything on it but we were basically just doing uh the material that we'd been rehearsing which was um at a point of you know uh, touching up and finishing off vocals and and Chris mentioned it to John and he came into the studio and it was it was pretty casual we uh He sang on something, and it sounded just fantastic. And consequently, when you listen to the album, uh, most of the lead vocals are John, but some are mine. And that's not because that's just because it was there and it worked, so we left it. But uh, John clearly became, you know, the voice again of the band, and it's just a marvelous singer and uh, incredible. I mean, I've I've never experienced a singer on on the road where every single show, his tuning was impeccable. Uh, He was always on
0: on top of his game. Did you have to initiate yourself into their back catalogue? I mean, how did this work in in the 70s in South Africa? Were you at all a Yes fan? No,
1: um, I I wasn't. I mean, I'd heard Yes, and uh, the thing that uh, really perked my ears up was listening to Chris's bass and the amazing high voice of John Anderson. And uh, I, had, uh, I was a f- quite a fan of Rick Wakeman. I had his album, Six Wives of Henry VIII, <laughs> I think it was. And uh, thereafter, in fact, when we did the Union tour, there's a track on Rick's album, which he does this very fast keyboard part. And um, in a joke during rehearsal, I played it to him on guitar, and he, he said, oh, during my solo, you've got to come up and do that with me. So uh, that's, how, you know, my uh, yes knowledge was pretty limited, although obviously I knew Seen All Good People and uh, Close to the Edge, and I was familiar with all of that. Um, but Chris's sound was just, and his, his approach to bass was like no other. And uh, to this day, there's,
0: there's never been a Chris Squire, although many have tried. Take us back to your favorite uh, classic Chris Squire Based treatment from, yes, in the 70s, or even in the late 60s? Uh, sweet Dreams. Sweet Dreams. Here it is. Sweet solve the Did you ever have to play that on the road?
1: Um, I insisted that at some point we played that. We did it for a while. I, just, I loved the song. And, you know, as I say, when when I heard that, I got cold shivers with a, with the a bass part. It was incredible.
0: And then obviously he's remembered a lot for his work on Fragile and uh, Close to the Edge. It's almost like his, his bass, you know, pump up the volume on the bass, was always competing with, uh, you know, be it John Anderson's really high voice or... Uh, Rick Wakeman's extremely elaborate keyboard work, but it always seemed like like Chris's bass was the highest.
1: Oh, he would he would sit in the studio and uh, guard his fader with his life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about those first days. So you got the uh, contract from Atco Atlantic Records. You were coming out as Yes. This was uh, branded as kind of Yes West right? The, the second right. iteration of the band after it had survived the 1970s going from, uh, you know, its its style in the first two albums, which were some, somewhat Beatles-like, and then it became uh, hugely orchestral. There were some tracks that ran above 20, 22 minutes, if you go to Tales from Topographic Oceans. So by the time you had realized that this was going to be uh, an iteration of Yes... Uh, tell us what that, that first tour was when the album first came out. Was Owner of a Lonely Heart the first track?
1: Well, we played it on the show. I think it was somewhere near the end of the show, but Chris was very gracious when it came to the, uh, previous yes stuff. He said, look, you know, I don't want you to clone or do anything like that. You, I want you to interpret it any way you want. And, and we really kind of rearranged a lot of the stuff and, uh, so that it you know when you we went from that into some of the 901 to 5 stuff it still had cohesion
0: what was happening behind the scenes in management terms because we hear these stories about the keyboardist tony k being there not being there coming back again the video for owner of a lonely heart is is etched in every mtv fan's mind it was a you know, maybe an apocalyptic scene of a man going mad and flying off of a building. The extended cut has all of you guys morphing into various animals. I think it was it was really one of MTV's peak moments. Uh, what was happening HR-wise behind the scene, you know, taking it back to Chris and how he how he made, uh, you know, Yes Classic merge with this juggernaut that was with Yes West 90125 in 83
1: well a lot of it happened by accident and just by circumstance but the the, as I say the first part of it was Phil Carson getting us uh, getting us to meet up and then we were as I say we rehearsed for um, many months and during that time actually the uh, manager who became our manager Tony Dimitriatus who now manages uh, Tom Petty and uh, I think Cat Stevens at this point and a number number of other artists was shopping the stuff around. There was no uh, clear-cut decision that we were going to be going with Atlantic. And in fact, when Atlantic uh, first picked us up, we were going to be on Atlantic. And then Ahmed Ertikin said, I'd like to give yes to ATCO and uh, we'll put a really big push behind it. And that's when we uh, literally signed to Atlantic and started recording.
0: Now, this really flew out the gates. Uh, Obviously, at the time of the confluence with the MTV generation, the lead single, Owner of a Lonely Heart, became Yes's first and only U.S. number one hit. That drove the whole album, 90125, to the top five, and it sold a certified 3 million copies in the U.S., which got Yes a triple platinum designation. I mean, in spite of everything that happened in the 1970s, all of the touring the band had never really experienced a uh, commercial ardor of this size.
1: Right, right. No, it, it was pretty extraordinary. I remember hearing Ona Valoney Heart." I was living in the the valley in LA and it came on the radio and I was sitting at the pool. thought, oh, it doesn't sound quite right, and I hope this happens. You know, it's it's every premiere I go to uh, that I've done the music for, I sit there and I'm critiquing the music. I, I just hate watching the film at any premiere. I can really only watch, <laughs> watch the movie a couple of years later when I can relax. And I think it was the same with Ona when
0: I first heard it, and next thing, I didn't stop hearing it. It was played constantly. I remember on the initial MTV, you're you're watching uh, that that moon landing character with the MTV person. You know, someone having grown up on MTV, I didn't have cable. My friend Ross Turian across the street did, and I would always go there, and his his, his mom was... uh, cool with us watching MTV, and there would be some VJ in front of an aquarium, and this is Yes, uh, you know, Honorable Only Heart, and they played an extended version of it. It was a real, uh, I wonder who came up with the idea for the video, if that was, uh, you know, that really thrusted you guys into the video generation. Yes, obviously, was no stranger to touring, huge, huge arenas, but this was uh, such a dystopian video.
1: To be totally frank, I don't think any of us in Yes particularly cared (laughs) about the videos and uh i mean to this day i don't quite understand what the hell owner baloney hearts about uh i don't think it has much to do with the music when it came out i just sat there with my mouth open i remember calling chris saying i i don't know and then leave it uh the the next single was us upside down and then all in suits just standing there i never really i don't think we ever really gravitated (laughs) to getting involved in the videos. It was always like going to the dentist.
0: (laughs) Tell us about touring with Chris. Uh, I met you guys backstage. I think it was 1994 in Miami for the talk tour. Here's a confession to the world. Chris, if you're up there listening, I mean, you can understand. I posed as a a lab uh, assistant, right? You're supposed to go backstage uh, and help everybody uh, out if if there were blood tests being done, if... um, the stadium didn't want to have liability issues. I think it was the Miami Arena, and I got to meet Chris, and he took a good half hour with his sample. God bless him. He's like, you know, I have to be careful. They're blood thinners and everything, um, and it, it kind of lends lends evidence to this idea that the guy was always late. I heard that he got the nickname the Fish because he liked to take long baths. Right <laughs> now, it's funny. It's funny you say that because I always I always called him Fish and
1: um, and Chris. But I always thought it was because he was a, a uh, uh, what's a Pisces. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So that was news to me. I read it the other day.
0: What was it like? Where did you guys break out of the gate? Have you had you ever toured anything like this before? In your experiences with uh, with Rabbit in the 70s or yeah. solo touring?
1: Yeah. No. Rabbit was uh, you know it was a pretty big uh, band and the crowd would go nuts. So I I definitely. Uh, done that, and I'd done a solo tour in, uh, in England. Um, so I was pretty familiar with being on the road. Uh, but doing it with Yes was, you know, working with Chris on stage was so extraordinary. Uh, it was like having a steamroller behind you, you know. He was such a presence just as a human being and then as a bass player. Boy, you
0: knew he was there. What was he like? On the road. I mean, what, what what was it like going out with these guys? I always look at an album like that, and I imagine obviously, nine oh one two five is really raven heavy. Uh, but then Chris Squire, yes, I mean, I, I guess he could play loud, he could play soulful, he could play jazzy, he could play funky. Uh, John Anderson, uh, you, you listen to something like that, and then you subsequently listen to Big Generator. It always sounded like. Um, I wonder what happened behind the scenes culturally. or How do you pair someone like a John Anderson and where he came from and almost like a you know, star child person with Trevor Rabin and his, and his sensibilities? There was always a competition, I think, from the layperson's eyes that, that um, you know, the, the battle for uh, the sound of yes in the 1980s and the early 90s was largely between Anderson's idea and Rabin's idea.
1: Well, yeah, John and I, uh, right from the start, I think there was a mutual respect – But uh, the very different place we came from musically um, uh, uh, led to it taking quite some time for us to get close. At this point in time, funnily enough, John and I are very, very close friends. But throughout the time with Yes, Chris and I were extremely close. And uh, Turing for me and definitely for Chris was not just the show. It was afterwards. No one's
0: ever made me laugh as much as Chris did. Give us a story, something that he did somewhere around the world. I mean, I've, I've heard stories that you guys were enormous in Brazil. The Brazilians couldn't get enough of you in the mid 80s.
1: Oh, it was amazing. We played uh, Rock in Rio in 1985, I think it was. And that's the biggest audience uh, any of us have played to. It was, I think, around 400,000 people and uh it was a, a, kind of a weird experience because there was so many people there was at first there was a, almost a lack of communication because it was so large and the stage was so high and you were somewhat removed from the, from the crowd but w- within the first couple of songs um it was and we had to, a giant pa system and uh but in spite of that, the, the the noise of the crowd almost overcame the band.
0: Um, how did this all jibe with, um, I, I would love to know, kind of uh, people straddling continents? So yes, became known as a, a very West Coast phenomenon in the 80s and 90s, but it was born in the UK, and you obviously came from South Africa. Um, right. How did, did everybody just decamp after 90125? And I believe there was a Steven Soderbergh documentary in 1985. It was a, Different, different magical time. Did everybody just repair back to their respective camps, and and was it agreed that you would, you would um, rejoin for another album?
1: Yeah, I, it, it's it's uh, it's a great question because when we did nine oh one to five, we weren't really thinking beyond that. Although there was no thought of we'll do this and stop, but it uh, it was definitely. I think we all perceived it as being something that uh, an ongoing thing, but. There was no planning beyond a 90125 and even the touring was, uh, actually, I I have a a funny story, which you might find funny. When uh, we did the 90125 tour, just before we started touring, I had had an accident in Miami. Mm -hmm. Uh, A woman came down a slide uh, in a swimming pool and hit into me and uh, ruptured my spleen. Jeez. And I landed up in hospital Um, for a couple of weeks and then recovery in Miami for, I don't know, five weeks or so. So the tour was postponed for a long time. So consequently, by the time we got on the road, we knew the tour was going to be, you know, the tickets and everything looked really pretty astonishing. And the single was number one and and the album was, you know, being sold like hotcakes. So we knew what we were in for. And at that point, the manager said, you know what, to make this thing more comfortable, I'm going to charter a plane for a number of months, uh, which was incredibly uh, comfortable to have that. And that's how we traveled throughout the 901 to 5 period. And uh, then once we did the next album, Big Generator, we had a meeting. uh, And this time the album was finished. We were ready to go on the road. But the album was just released, so we had no clue how it was going to do or how the ticket sales were going to be. So the management, uh, Tony Artis, had a meeting with us and said, look, I think it would be a more pragmatic way and a sensible way to fly commercially because we really don't know what it's going to do and I'd hate to go to the expense of chartering for you know, many months and and find that the album didn't do well, and then, you know, it would be a financially irresponsible thing to do. And so Chris's response to that was, well, what if the album does huge? Then we'll have gone commercial for nothing.
0: <laughs> I wish you could do it in his accent. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think I can. <laughs> what if the album does great, we'll have gone commercial for nothing. <laughs> There's this legend of this guy you know, again all of this stuff is rumor because you before the age of of the internet and everything you'd have to read liner notes and 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 look into every little page of Rolling Stone magazine and newsletters that yes fans would send out there was a group called the the the, the troopers which were loyal I think to the 1970s iterations of yes and there were generators people like me who loved uh, you know your work in in in, in Big Generator nine oh one two five. But then now you you hear these things that they say. Oh, you know, Squire was like this big, uh, you know, meat eating, steak eating, whiskey swilling, uh, you know, pot smoking boar, And uh, he, you know, but he was still the CEO of the company. Was there any truth to that? pretty accurate. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, you can imagine John Anderson having like a s- flower petal salad to the side where, you know, <laughs> Chris Squire is digging into a steak or a Wellington and having it with a glass of wine or something.
1: Yeah, well, there were there were times when uh, on tour, actually, John would have a teepee set up in his dressing room and all kitted out with incense and stuff. It was... It was It was was very calming, and he used to have his teepee every show. They'd have to set up his teepee.
0: Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Trevor Rabin, longtime guitarist for Yes. He was with the band roughly from 1981-1982 to the mid '90s. He's uh, currently a decorated uh, film composer. You've you've heard his scores on many Jerry Bruckheimer films, like Remember the Titans, Armageddon, National Treasure. And what's this? I I read that Trevor, that um, your score was being used uh, on President Obama's acceptance speech. In November two thousand and eight, did you were you asked permission?
1: Uh, no, I wasn't. Um, and while being, I guess, nominally slighted, um, I was on the winning ticket, I was, I was fine. <laughs> but yeah, they used. Remember the Titans for the for the um, basically the background music for his uh, campaign and his uh, acceptance.
0: Uh, Trevor, tell us about Big Generator. We were talking about that, and you mentioned the private jet. Uh, if I remember that was, that was in the video for Love Will Find a Way. It was like a vulture, a private jet and you guys around a bonfire looking like you're having a lot of fun. Um, you always read these things about, about maybe that was the album that, that threw Yes into kind of Helter Skelter. I loved it. I mean, I love the track Love Will Find a Way. I loved Shoot High Aim Low, which was uh, ambivalent in many DJs' eyes. You know, they wouldn't play it, but it was beautiful. It was haunting. Uh, what was going on behind the scenes? Because it, it's it's one of my favorite albums, bar none, but there certainly sounded like there was something troubled behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty um, traumatic album. Uh, first of all, it cost and took so much longer than it should have. We started off, um, I had a friend who was running a studio in uh, Italy, and he had said, "Look, I've got this great studio with a uh, this great old Harrison board, which is one of my favourite recording consoles." And uh, we went. I think it was just Chris and I went to uh, to see it. It was ju- just outside of Milan, near Lake Como. Uh, what was it called? Caramati, I think it was
0: called. Yes, Caramati, Italy.
1: Yeah, and uh, it was in a castle. So there were incredible rooms to record in, and numerous ones. And uh, we went there in summer, and it was incredible. But unbeknownst to us at the time, we were going to be recording in winter. So it was incredibly cold. (laughs) And we really hadn't prepared for it, because we had never really worked together as a band outside of touring and uh, the peculiar way in which 901-5 came about. So when we got into Big Generator, there was a kind of n- no no real brief or or a idea of what we should do. And I'd I'd written a number of songs, and everyone had uh, Chris and uh, uh, John. I think had written quite some quite a lot of stuff, um, and we decided we'd go back with Trevor Horn for this, and that didn't last too long. Uh, We stayed in 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 Karamati for a number of months and then went back to London to continue there and it just wasn't getting done. So we came to L.A. and uh, I landed up spending quite some time mixing it myself. Um, And I got to say, I'm glad you like it because I was actually very proud of that album. In spite of the uh, trauma and how hard it was to get together,
0: what was happening with your CEO behind the scenes? Um, I, you know, did, I I I always got the impression that John Anderson, your lead singer, had kind of you know this was a grueling album. It took a couple of years. It dragged on. I think you started work in '85 or '86. You finished touring for Nine Hundred One Two Five, which was brutal, but exhilarating unto itself. And then you get into the studio for this Karamati, the, the freezing temperatures out there don't exactly work out well. John is hearing the siren song of maybe solo work and maybe, you know, Howe and Wakeman and all those guys are beckoning. Uh, what what happened to kind of keep this going and, and kind of get it over the hill? You obviously had to do some, some deft rescue work to mix it and correct it in Los Angeles. But what got it through the finish line to the autumn of uh, 1987?
1: perseverance, if you like, there were a number of great ideas I thought we all thought we had, um, but taking those great parts and building them into something just became really difficult. Like we'd have one part and then the part it went into just wasn't working and there was seemed to be no solution for it. So it really took quite some time. And at the same time, while this was happening, John was Integrating into a band that we'd never really worked together um, in this way. Uh, so it, it was pretty difficult. Although at the end of the day, I think John's vocals were extraordinary. And uh, uh, you know, Chris's input was obviously as always incredibly important, but certainly he was uh having a good time during that period.
0: And it certainly got a lot of heavy airplay. I remember "Love Will Find a Way" and uh, "Rhythm of Love" on MTV. If I if I remember, you you and John went on MTV to debut the uh, video for "Rhythm of Love," which was definitely a departure from anything yes had ever done i remember it was right. my mother would not let me watch that video it was beautiful it was <laughs> industrial you had a you know scantily clad model on it it was such a deviation from anything a, a yes person of the mid 70s remembered and i think it uh, you know at, at that point you started hearing these mumblings about maybe a reunion of of classic yes was going to happen in parallel
1: well i i wasn't aware of that however i must say that any deviation from the quote unquote style of what our videos were had nothing to do with the band because I think every video we did, the band would, once the final was served up to us, we would
0: just kind of look at it and go, oh.
1: <laughs> so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's amazing. It's, a, it's an honor to be able to ask this on the other end, because I always imagined that all manner of of thinking and preparation went into this, that it was highly premeditated, that it was not an accident, or there must be a reason why, you know, here is my heart waiting for you. Here is my soul. I eat at Chez New. I know you get asked about that left and right at right. cocktail parties. Here's your chance to demystify that.
1: Okay, I eat at Chez New. Was, there was there was a restaurant in L.A. called Chez New, and I did eat there. But if I'm to be completely honest, I couldn't find a line for that part. And it rhymed, and it just felt right, so I stuck it in there. You
0: close to me. Trevor, tell us about Shoot High, Aim Low. Uh, I, I can't get over that track, and that's one where it seems like you and John are running in, in kind of parallel paths together. There's Chris Squire's, Baseline kind of keeping you uh, uh, um, you know on course. Uh, but I could never I could never reconcile the lyrics. was it about Nicaragua? was it about the blue fields? Um, was this um, you know, I, I hear a lot of yes fans who are yes holes actually say that I have a lot of respect uh, for this song. It, it got short shrifted by DJs out there, but to this day, let's say almost what 25 years after the fact, it's it's one of their favorite 1980s yes tracks. We
1: It's, uh, I think, my favorite song on the album. And uh, lyrically, it was loosely um, about Nicaragua, and John and I had written the lyrics together. But to me, that's a, a great example of Chris's bass playing. You know, a, a lot of other bass players would have just played the, 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 the root note or the tonic on and, uh, you know, gone along with the song. Chris came up with what I consider to be one of the more important melody at, uh, components to that song. And, uh, you know, it was possibly the, the song I, I I fought with, most of all, mixing. It was a very difficult mix um, because it needed to have the power, but it also needed to have the sense of uh, relief after the choruses so that the light and shade was... Hmm. was correct.
0: And what is this concept of of dream time that John Anderson always talked about, that the way they reconciled your voice and his voice in parallel, or uh, another phrase was harmonic convergence. Um, I, I always wondered, you know, was did these guys record that separately? Were they not getting along? Did they, were they doing their different things on different continents? And this was just the way uh, Trevor masterfully brought it together at the end? Or Again, was this premeditated? the way you guys did shoot high, aim low, you know John's verse, your verse, John's verse, your verse, because I could very much imagine it as a Trevor Rabin vocal only um yeah, and that's kind of how it started
1: but uh, i'd I'd love to be able to say that uh, your perception is correct, but unfortunately, it was just. You know, throw as much stuff as you can at it to make it work because we knew we had something there, and we just, you know, like with the easel, just kept throwing paint on it uh, until it was right. So there was no premeditated thought of how it was going to be structured. Um, It really just happened. I mean, very often you you hear about Beatles songs and how incredible it was that they came up with this, and then only to find that. It, uh, so-and-so happened to be in the studio, and the engineer made a mistake, and that's what landed up being one of the, you know, one of the key components.
0: Full disclosure, we're talking to Trevor Rabin, longtime guitarist for Yes. Um, his good friend and partner in the band, uh, Chris Squire, passed away just recently after a battle uh, with leukemia. He died at the young age of, what was it, 67, Trevor?
1: 67. 67.
0: And he was on the verge of being able to say, I think, within five years that I had been with this band for 50 years. Uh, that was, you know, to, to, to be able to say that, even though you guys were, I think, thwarted in the first pass at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, that's pretty unprecedented. And to see all of the uh, outpouring of, of sympathy and emotions coming in from various band members, uh, people who were inspired, a, a beautiful essay in Slate magazine, a beautiful essay In the New York Times uh, about Chris and how um, he affected uh, various adolescents and other musicians. I mean, obviously nobody expected uh, Chris to depart uh, this soon in his life. But to what extent, I mean, has this blown you away?
1: Um, I haven't really come to terms with it. He was so dear to me and such a close friend. And I could confide in him, kind of choking up here. I could confide him in the same way that I do my brother and uh, i knew if i told chris a secret it was safe um he was really just an extraordinary human being i don't think he had a malicious bone in his body he was incredibly smart which i don't think people realized how smart he was because he was you know such a kind of flamboyant um presence had such an flamboyant and uh aura about him uh Never intended. He was always just being Chris. But uh, you couldn't deny, his, if he walked into a room, you knew Chris had come in.
0: Oh, he was huge. I mean, yeah, it was not preordained at all that he would play the bass guitar, but he wanted to do something like this, and he had huge hands, and he was a tall guy, and he cut a swath and uh, very much taught himself. Um, I am curious, if you fast forward from Big Generator, which was received uh, reasonably well, um, even though... The the nineteen eighties were drawing to a close. Uh, um, you know, yes, this kind of window from that nine oh one two five glow was, you know, to mix metaphors, kind of dimming. Uh, the band reemerged in nineteen ninety one on Arista Records on this massive conglomeration called uh, Union, uh, which right. brought which brought the two iterations, the, the the Troopers and the Generators, together in like this Camp David. Giant handshake. If I remember, you guys were in the round or something back then? As far as the tour goes, yes. As far as the album goes, I had received
1: a call from Clive Davis saying that he's doing the Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman album, the second album, and they don't have a single. Would I be interested in writing a single, which I found kind of a peculiar thing. Uh, In our mind, yes, was uh, still around, but John had gone off to do this, and I was thought, OK, well, we're on hiatus. Um, I didn't really think too much about it. And Roger Hudson,
0: the guy from Supertramp. Well, you'd, it, had, a, you'd had a solo album in the in the meantime, if I remember. Yes, I,
1: in fact, and a solo tour. And uh, soon thereafter, uh, Roger Hudson had got hold of me to see if – and we actually wrote some stuff, which we were very
0: happy with. Wait, and, Supertramp? Yes. So the lead singer from Supertramp is thinking about (laughs) replacing John Anderson as John Anderson went off with Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe in the late 80s and early 90s.
1: No, in fact, it was just uh, Roger got hold of me as just a musician and Mm. the two of us started working together and we were going to do something. And, you know, it, it was so untogether, the yes thing. We didn't, the only person who was really thinking about how to sustain the the yes thing and reconcile the problems that this new entity Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe which I don't think Chris was very happy about because you know 901 to 5 had been the biggest success the band had ever had and he wanted to sustain that but I was off doing my solo album and then working with Roger Hudson and uh, then uh, fast forward I get this call to write a single and it just kind of uh, taped into this entity where I'd, I had, uh, I think, written three songs or four songs which went on the album. And the single was the song I'd written called uh, Lift Me Up. And uh, John and Chris and uh, Alan worked on it. But there was no other member. So really, when you get down to, you know, the, as you call them, the generators and the troopers, Right. Right. Um, which I, it's new to me, I'd never heard it um, we never even saw each other I had nothing to do with the Union album outside of the tracks I did and uh, I remember there was uh, a lot of animosity towards the guy who produced the other stuff uh, because he had re- uh, gone and replaced a lot of Steve Howe's parts with session players and the same with all the instruments and so I don't think any of them were very happy with the End result of what happened, and as far as the material that I contributed, along with John and Chris and Alan, uh, you know, that's as close as we got to uh, to it being a kind of cohesive thing. Uh, So when it came out. I don't, uh, Rick refers to it as
0: the Onion album, not Union. It's because it always makes me cry. (laughs) How did you get along with all those guys? I mean, you hadn't toured with them before. I mean, we're talking about Steve Howe. Here's a guy who must be saying, "Okay, yeah. So you've been handling my uh, tracks for the last ten years. I, I wonder what that. I mean, it's not like this guy trained you while you were while you were in the Yes West iteration of the '80s. I mean, he, he just had to kind of. I wonder where well, you just got well put on on tour in 1991, and voila, you had to get along.
1: Yeah, it was pretty much that, and uh, I think it was coincidence. or maybe it was somehow. Um a Freudian thing, but uh, Steve and I, because we were on the li- on the round, landed up on exactly the opposite sides of the stage. <laughs> and uh, um, I mean, we got on okay, but um, you know, I pretty much landed up playing the old stuff the way I had remembered doing it, and Steve did it his way, and somehow it kind of merged together and worked. Uh, so there was no kind of intricate kind of working out of how we can merge these two. Entities together. And uh, when it came to doing the 901 to 5 stuff and my stuff from Union or our stuff from Union, uh, there would be um, Steve would play on some of it. And there was one track I used to do on the road called um, uh,
0: What is that track called? Long Distance. Long Distance Runaround?
1: Right. I used to play that with a band, but when we did the Union tour, I decided, you know what, I'm just going
0: um, <laughs> to. Take Stay a sip of, of water or get off stage while he's doing yeah, it? Yeah, I'd,
1: I'd go off the stage and make some phone calls. And Steve would do the same with some of the songs, but uh, he's he stayed on the stage for a lot of them, on uh, Changes and uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart. Uh, but I must say that uh, Rick Wakeman and I just hit it off incredibly well, so much so that uh, Rick, John, and I have been... Uh, talking about and schedule as being the biggest enemy, doing an album together for ages. Get
0: out of town!
1: Yeah. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> I have to say, I, I was I was worried that you were going to say, well, Rick almost convinced me to don a cape uh, for the next tour, <laughs> which would have been talk.
1: No? <laughs> I mean, it's a toss-up for who was funnier on the road. Rick, uh, Chris certainly had the the dry sense of humor that used to crack me up, but Rick was just always always had a joke and it was just so funny. He used to have a newspaper backstage and would deliver it the next day of the goings-on the night before. Mm. It, it was just so... I, I, I don't have any and I wish I did because I was so hilarious. <laughs> but I got on very very well with uh, Rick. Uh, I got on very very well with Bill. and uh, Although Rick and I really became close friends. Mm. So it was a very enjoyable tour at the end of the day. Do you still see Alan White? Alan, I'm actually Alan's son's godfather. So we were recently at his wedding and I often speak to Alan. But the the guy I spoke to most since I had left the band was Chris. We we still talked all the time.
0: I'd like to read from an essay, a beautiful essay that. Uh, the columnist uh, Dave Weigel penned this week for Slate. He said, Remembering Chris Squire, the very loud beating heart of yes. Uh, Dave is penning, uh, a, a book that looks at the history of progressive rock and spent a good time talking to uh, former members of Yes. Uh, he said, The last time I saw Chris Squire his band was on the cruise to The Edge, a luxury trip from Florida to Mexico where Yes played three of the classic 70s records in a row, every fuzzed note and solo and block chord. This was pure fan service. Quote, It adds some excitement for the audience in terms of knowing what the next track is, of knowing which track follows the other. Squire told me cheerfully. It's a good concept. And this is where it gets pointed for me, Trevor. Um, He says, On stage, Squire looked perfectly happy, but that was not the highlight of his cruise. Each night, the more musically inclined passengers took over a lounge to play through hours-long set lists of progressive rock classics. On the second to last night, they played Gates of Delirium, Yes's longest and most melodically complex song, inspired by War and Peace and grounded by Squire's bass lines. Squire and his family walked in on the performance unannounced. He sat on a wraparound leather couch, daubing away tears as five fans played every note of a 22 minute Yes song. The bass was mixed very loud. Gosh, this is the best essay ever written about Yes from a person who was born in 1981, whose persona is, you know, a political columnist. All these people come out of the woodwork this week to say, gosh, you know, Chris Squire and Yes changed my life
1: that is quite extraordinary and it epitomizes who Chris was uh, you know music was everything to him and he's he's his need if you like to uh, for every song he played he wanted he wanted the bass to be doing something not just providing you know the bass end but uh, providing a personality and uh, I don't think I can I can't think of another bass player who's had more influence on bass playing with regard to rock and roll than Chris. He was an extraordinary talent.
0: Trevor, I want you to tell us about uh, the mid-'90s after uh, Talk, which, which kind of had a—it almost had a swan-songy feeling to it. The, the, the time you guys convened, reconvened, was it you, Alan White, Chris Squire, John Anderson, uh, uh, to do this, this album. It was uh, known as really kind of uh, Rabin-heavy. Um, to Yes fans, and then you had, what, officially quit Yes, or, or did you guys just all decide to go your separate ways? Well, after the
1: uh, talk tour, the vibe, while on the tour was good, but once the tour ended, it just seemed to fizzle out, and, you know, I had really been thinking about, I, I missed working with orchestra, and, you know, the only thing I ever did orchestra-wise with Yes is I put a little string octet on the beginning of Love Will Find A Way. But outside of that, I really hadn't um, done that. And I just thought, you know, I had done all I could with uh, in doing talk. And I thought it was probably a good time to move on.
0: And so what of this story of how you became almost by accident, by serendipity, a decorated uh, composer of film scores?
1: It's, it's quite interesting. Were you eating because... at a
0: restaurant called Chenu?:
1: No, it was actually called Eclipse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The maître d' said to me, Stephen Segal was a co-owner of the restaurant and had mentioned that uh, he, he knew I was coming into the restaurant, and he had said to the maître d', please ask him if he wouldn't mind calling me because I'd love him. To, I'd love to sit with gu- a guitar with him and for, basically for me to give him a lesson, and uh, I did that. Uh, cut a long story short, I went to his place and we spent a couple of hours and uh playing and uh I taught him I think it was other things, but uh essentially Red House, the Hendrix's Red House. And he was very thankful and uh offered a, a movie to me. I said he said, is there anything I can do for you? Because this has been I thank you so much for this these two hours we've spent together. And I said, Well I, I I'm I've left the band and my intention is to be a film composer. And uh, I I was really asking if you knew a film composer agent or uh, someone I could speak to about it because it was really right at the inception of me uh, starting film and leaving Yes and he just very casually said well I've just done a film if you want to do it and so I never went through the years of apprenticing and uh, you know working for another composer and then getting to do a piece of music and someone noticing it I I just kind of jumped in and I did that and then my next film was Con Air with Jerry Brockheimer. Hmm. and my intention was to do a couple of films and just and then you know go back to yes or or start another band or I I wasn't quite sure but I certainly hadn't expected to uh, continue to do films for this
0: long Gosh and it's uh, been almost know. twenty years of doing films at this point.
1: Uh, yeah it's and it's it, it feels like Con Air was yesterday so you know along the way, I mean there's been times when Chris has approached me to rejoin the band and um which obviously never happened and uh I've just carried on doing film, although I did do and I must say as we were talking about videos, the first video which I really got involved with was uh I did a solo album last year, which is an instrumental album and uh called Jackaranda and uh i uh wanted to do a video for one of the tracks, and I didn't want, because of my experience with videos, I decided I really want control over this. So I actually got a camera, learned some stuff about lighting, and uh, and did the video myself, edited it myself, shot it myself, and um, that's the first video I
0: can say I'm responsible for, good or bad. I was wondering now, in, in, in this day and age, do you have a Spotify account? Um, Do you still use CDs? I mean, gosh, the fact that everybody carries their libraries everywhere, it must just blow your mind. Uh,
1: I think one of the saddest things about full music, and Chris and I have spoken about this, is the experience of getting an album. And I'm dating myself, but a long playing record, opening it up, putting it on, reading all the information, The sequencing of of the songs was such an integral part
0: of the Yes experience, actually, even with the album, the artwork, the Roger Dean artwork, or the liner notes, everything you put into them. I remember going and blowing $18 on an LP and and bringing it home and playing it, and then the, the CD experience, but... Gosh, you gotta imagine today if you were if you were with yes, these guys are playing smaller venues. they're playing cruises. Uh, uh, established artists are complaining that 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 the streaming players are paying them, you know pennies on the dollar when in the past they used to get a good cut of of record sales.
1: Yeah, I don't know what representation music uh, as a whole has in Washington, but whatever it does have is pretty weak because there's no one representing musicians and helping um you know, even as far as copyright in places like India and China, I mean they, they just nothing, nothing happens. I mean no one gets paid. Um, I feel really, really sorry for, um, you know, there's so many great musicians all the time and uh, there used to be this pot of gold and I'm not talking financially, but this this career, this entity that yes became and... Uh, Deep Purple and whoever you you need, you can mention many of them, the Beatles. Um, And it's it's just the the rewards are just not the same anymore. And uh, my son is in a band called Group Love who are doing very well, but it's such a very different experience these days.
0: Well, Trevor, close us out with a, with a hopeful, uh, wistful thought about Chris. I mean, suppose he's out there listening. Uh, this, this broadcast is going to get, you know, spewed out into the ether. He's going to hear his tracks. He's going to hear uh, recollections. Uh, his fans are going to hear this. Um, what would you like us to hear? What would you like him to hear?
1: I, I just would love people to know, uh, you know, as I said to you, I just haven't come to terms. I haven't really dealt with it. I mean, every now and then I think to myself, good God, I can't call Chris today. I, I can't speak. You know, he's gone. It's 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 almost impossible to, to wrap my head around it. But um, he was, I mean, he was such a huge presence. He was, unbeknownst to a lot of people, so incredibly funny. had such an incredible wit. And uh, his, his talent was so natural. And uh, it just came from the heart, and he was naturally so incredibly... his ear was so good. And the other thing, Chris could tell you my phone number from 20 years ago, he had such an incredible memory, and uh, I've never seen someone able to absorb so much information. He was incredibly smart, and there'll, there'll never be another.
0: Trevor Rabin, longtime guitarist of Yes, close friend of Chris Squire's who sadly passed away, Uh, last week thank you so much for setting up the time to join us this week Uh, we all remember Chris fondly and I hope that there's some comfort uh, for you and for fans to to listen to your thoughts uh, over the last hour I'm so grateful for you
1: Well, Robin, thank you very much. And you should do this more often. You're pretty good at
0: it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Full disclosure uh, we are on NPR One, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, WRIR. Our engineer is John Valentine. Closing us out is Chris Squire himself with his solo effort from 1975, Lucky Seven. Enjoy it. Rest in peace, Chris. Thank you. Miss you. Play it loud up there. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.